I'm Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. Imagine being the beloved disciple, the Apostle John, on Good Friday. Imagine being there at Calvary. You're the only one of the 12 apostles that remained faithful to Jesus that day, faithful all the way to the end, his close friend right there at Calvary. Imagine being there with Jesus's mother, Mary, and Mary Magdalene and the other women. And as things start to draw to their close, as Jesus is approaching his final moments before he dies, he talks directly to you and to his mother, Mary. And he looks you in the eye and he says to you, the beloved disciple, behold your mother. What would these words have meant to you, to you, a Jew in the first century, one of the faithful disciples of Christ? What would these words meant to you? We're going to see that these powerful words have so much rich biblical meaning in the gospel of John that tells us so much about the role of Mary in the Christian life. In fact, this is one of the most important passages if you want to be able to see Mary and explain Mary as our spiritual mother and why we honor her and why she prays for us, you need to know this passage really well. And what we're going to do is we're going to unpack the biblical roots of this passage so that you can have confidence to understand Mary's role in the Christian life in scripture and explain her role to others. Uh, And we're going to continue our journey here as we are considering today the third of Christ's seven last words from the cross. And this is our series we're doing here during Lent. And I'm so excited to get into this today. And I want to give a special thanks to the many people who contacted me over the last week. Uh, I was inviting feedback and uh, just impressions of our our reflections on these seven last words, especially in our last episode when we were looking at the words between the good thief and Jesus. Uh, And we considered a lot about the good thief's last minute conversion, why he did that and how profound that was and what a model it is for our own lives. And I just want to give a thanks to Kim from Arkansas. Kim uh, sent this message in. She said, I've been listening to your podcast from the beginning. Thanks so much for continuing this work. It makes a difference in my life each week. The story of the good thief had never especially stood out for me. As usual, you made it meaningful and taught me something new. There are so many people in my life who I will pray will turn to God. Some of them are elderly, and I fear that it's too late. Thanks for the reminder that it's never, ever too late. Yes, indeed, uh, Kim, you are, you are very right there that we can just forget. Sometimes we just fall into our own humanness and we think we have certain relatives and people close to us that we just think, oh, they're, they're too stubborn or they're not open. They're, they're just too set in their ways. They'll never change. They'll never be open to the gospel. And as we talked about last week in last week's episode, the good thief is a powerful reminder never to give up uh, on those family, friends, and loved ones and to continue praying for them. Kim goes on to say, I also appreciate the topic of rebuking the words of rationalization when we sin. It's so easy just to turn to Jesus, but most of the time we do just the opposite. It's now on my Lent list to be more in tune to those moments and respond right away. Yeah, we talked last week about how many times when we kind of sense maybe I've done something wrong, maybe I said something wrong, maybe I didn't give my best at Mass or in prayer, whatever it is, we kind of have our conscience kind of starting to say, oh, maybe you, you, that wasn't the, the best you, that you, you, you could have given. And when, when that happens, sometimes we have the voice of rationalization that kind of makes excuses for ourselves. We say, oh, I'm not that bad. I, I do, I'm doing better than other people. And, and so I love 
this, Kim, that you're taking that to heart and you're going to try to make these great Lenten moments the next time you hear your voice of conscience to let it come out. But if you hear that voice of rationalization, to rebuke it, to, to allow yourself to face the truth of your sins and weaknesses in light of the truth of God's mercy and where you can be forgiven and healed and move on. So thanks, Kim, for sharing that. I wanted to share a special message from uh, a man named Harold who, who sent... Uh, this message in. He talks about how he listens to the podcast on Amazon Echo. He says, I always find it edifying. Uh, and even and he really appreciated the reflection on the good thief. He says, in my early youth, I was deeply affected by the words, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But here's something I, I want to ask all the listeners if we could pray for, for this man here. He writes, I've had, I've had a chronic disability, uh, muscular dystrophy, uh, and I'm in a wheelchair. In addition, I have a ventilator, which now helps me to breathe. Recently, I was hospitalized with pneumonia and sepsis. So uh, Harold's really struggling here, and he could really use some prayers. He says, while I was in the hospital, I saw myself as the good thief there with Jesus on Calvary. Uh, so Harold, I want you to know, I, I got this message earlier this week, and I, I prayed for you right then. And I just want all the listeners right now, if you could, could we just do one quick Hail Mary uh, for Harold and all the other people you may know in your life who are suffering, uh, going through great difficulties, and may they, in their crosses, find Jesus, like, like Harold did here, turning to the image of the good thief. But let's say Hail Mary for him. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And Harold, I want you to know we're going to continue praying for you. Thanks for sending that request in. And uh, I want to also finally just mention one last person here. Uh, Matthew and his wife are in RCIA. They've been watching the Symbolon series on Forb.org. So I want you to know we're going to be praying for you and your journey toward the Easter vigil and full entry into the church. Uh, Matthew goes on to say, I just started listening to your podcast and started with the most recent one. I want to thank you for your hard work and your passion. The part about what forgiveness really is got to me and is helping me so much. Well, I'm so thankful to hear that, to really understand forgiveness <laughs> uh, and, and to to turn our hurt into intercession and compassion. Uh, that That's such a powerful thing. So thank you for passing on, Matthew. We're going to take some of the questions at the end of the episode. Uh, people like Patty had a great question she sent in about Satan entering Judas. Luke chapter 22 tells us at the Last Supper, uh, Satan enters Judas and Judas gets up from the Last Supper and goes to betray Christ to the chief priest. What does that really mean? Did Satan really go and side of Judas. And uh, we're going to talk about that and a few other questions that came in, but we'll talk about that at the end of the episode. I want to turn back to the Blessed Virgin Mary and these third of the last words of Christ. Behold your mother. Uh, What does this mean? You know, some people say, and in fact, many biblical scholars have said that this last act is this 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 one this culminating act of Christ on the cross. It's just about filial piety, meaning uh, filial meaning like a son, the the relationship of a son to his parent. This is just all about Jesus taking care of business, taking care of his mom before he dies. He knows he's about to uh, to breathe his last, and so he he puts the Blessed Virgin Mary into this maternal relationship with John, the beloved disciple, just so that there's someone else there looking after Mary after he dies. Now, that that would be a very kind deed of Jesus, and I'm sure that's a, a small part of what's going on. 
But is it likely that that's the main focus here? Right before Jesus dies, the, 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 one of the last things he's thinking about, one of the last things that John's gospel records for us is, oh, Jesus is just taking care of business for his mom here before he dies. I think that's unlikely. Because John's gospel, especially chapter 19, when, where this scene appears, uh, is so filled with theological symbolism and prophecy coming to fulfillment. Every little detail is there to tell us that the great story of salvation is reaching its culmination right here at Calvary. I doubt John is taking a little tangent saying, oh, and by the way, Jesus is just taking care of some human business here for his mom. Uh, I think that there's great theological significance in this scene. Think of all that's going on around this. In John chapter 19, verse 23, the soldiers are described as casting lots for Christ's clothing. Uh, and, and, it, and John even goes and quotes the Old Testament passage showing that this event is fulfilling the scriptures. Psalm 22, verse 18 tells us, that people would cast lots for the righteous man's clothing. The clothing was divided into, into parts, and, it, and they would cast lots for it. That's coming to fulfillment. Then you've got this other little detail where Jesus says, I thirst, and then they give him vinegar to drink. Well, John puts that there because that fulfills prophecy. Psalm 69, verse 21, uh, tells us, For my thirst they gave me vinegar. Uh, so that little detail's there, not just as a random little background piece of information, but to show us prophecy coming to fulfillment. Jesus's death is all a part of the Father's plan, as has been foretold for centuries in the Old Testament. Uh, another little detail we find in John chapter 19, verse 33, it tells us that uh, when, when the soldiers come to break the legs of the prisoners, this is what would normally happen. When someone's crucified, you would break their legs if you wanted to make sure they were dead, so that then they couldn't hold their bodies up anymore. They would be immediately suffocate. They'd die. Well, they get to Jesus's body and they see, no, no, we don't need to break his legs. Uh, he, he's clearly already dead. Why do we get that little detail? Well, once again, it's there to fulfill prophecy, as John points out for us, that in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, in the story of the Passover, the first Passover in Egypt, we learn about how the Passover lamb was supposed to be a lamb that was unblemished, a lamb whose legs were not broken. The fact that Jesus is dying on the cross during the Passover festival at the sixth hour, the period when the sacrifices would be offered for the Passover lamb, uh, this, this, this is clearly highlighting that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Look, even his legs are not broken. Uh, and they have him pierced in his side. In John chapter 19, verse 34, it tells us Jesus' side is pierced. And you know, the water and the blood come forth. Why is that mentioned? Because Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 tells us that they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Uh, so there's a great prophecy about that as well. So do you notice every little detail around this story of Jesus and the beloved disciple and his mother Mary? Every detail is just charged with great significance, allusions to the Old Testament prophecy coming to fulfillment. I think that indicates that, that when we see Jesus turning to the beloved disciple and saying, Behold your mother, he's doing a lot more than taking care of just ordinary human business, making sure someone's there to look out for his mom. There's some profound theological meaning in this. What would be the meaning in this scene? Well, let's step back here and consider who the beloved disciple is. 
the beloved disciple we know was the disciple that was close to Jesus. Uh, and he really stands out as a model disciple, a faithful disciple, the ideal disciple. And I think that's very important. Here's why. Uh, John's gospel often uses individual characters to represent larger groups. Uh, we see this uh, throughout the gospel. Take, for example, in John chapter 3, we read about a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, and he comes to Jesus at night. And he's asking Jesus's quest- Jesus questions, and he's confused. He doesn't understand. And this individual Pharisee, Nicodemus, this individual Jewish leader, represents all the Pharisees and the many other Jewish leaders who are like, like, like Nicodemus, in the dark, coming at night. <laughs> They're in the dark. They're confused about Jesus. They don't understand Jesus. They don't get what he's all about. Uh, so Nicodemus is an individual, but he represents the larger group of Pharisees who are misunderstanding Christ and opposed to him. Same thing in the very next chapter of John's gospel, chapter four, we read about uh, a woman at a well. She's a Samaritan woman and she's had a sinful past and her sinful life represents the, the, the whole faithful, the, the whole people of Samaria who have become unfaithful and started worshiping false gods. But yet she herself goes through a conversion. She comes to believe Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is the Messiah. And she becomes one of the first evangelists in John's gospel and tells the other villagers the other people in her village of Samaria, that that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and they come to believe in him. So this individual woman, her own individual life story of being a sinner who comes to conversion into Christ, represents the, the larger group of Samaritans who have lived a sinful life, but many of whom are going to come to friendship in Christ. So do you see how this works? Individual characters representing larger groups. You see this many times in John's gospel, and I think we see it here as well with this figure called the Beloved Disciple. You see, the Beloved Disciple is the only apostle that's not mentioned by name. He's just given this vague title, the Beloved Disciple. All the other disciples we get, we have names here. They're not just given a general title, but for John, St. John is traditionally the one identified with this Beloved Disciple. He is an individual, but I think he represents a larger group of people. Who might he represent? Let's think about what John's Gospel tells us about this great man, this great apostle, the beloved disciple. At the Last Supper in John 13, 25, the beloved disciple is the one who's closest to Jesus. He's he's sitting next to Jesus at the Last Supper. He's laying his head on Jesus's breast, showing great closeness and friendship. We, as we've already seen in John 19, 26, he's the only one of the 12 apostles who's there with Jesus uh, at Calvary, faithful to the end on Good Friday. So he's one that's willing to endure suffering and persecution to be close to Jesus, unlike the others who deny Christ or run away and are afraid for their own lives. Uh, On Easter Sunday, we read about how he's the first one to get to the tomb on Easter Sunday, the first of the 12 apostles. Remember, he and Peter are racing to the tomb. Who gets there first? The beloved disciple. And who's the first to believe in Jesus, that Jesus is risen from the dead? It's the beloved disciple. Who's the first one to go tell others about the risen Christ among the 12 apostles? Who's the first one? It's the beloved disciple bearing witness to the risen Christ. So the beloved disciple is a model disciple, a faithful disciple. He's the individual, John, the apostle, but he represents all faithful disciples, all faithful followers of Christ. In other words, all Christians. 
So that's the function of the beloved disciple in John's gospel. Now, let's think about how all this comes together at Calvary. What does this mean? What does this tell us when Jesus turns to the beloved disciple and says, Behold your mother. Well, on a basic level, yes, the beloved disciple, the individual St. John, is put into a special mother-son relationship with Mary. And he is indeed going to take care of Mary. All that's true. It's just that there's so much more here. That the beloved disciple also represents all faithful disciples, all Christians. And so when we hear Jesus say to the beloved disciple, behold your mother, the beloved disciple represents all of us. So it's as if Jesus is looking into our eyes today, and he's saying the same words to us, Behold your mother. Do you welcome Mary as your mother, your spiritual mother in your life? Do you, do you turn to her each day? Do you say at least a Hail Mary each day? Do you ask Mary to intercede for you with her maternal heart? Do you honor Mary? Because that's what we're called to do. The Bible's making very clear here that Mary is meant to be our spiritual mother. We stand in or we stand in the role of the beloved disciple. He represents all of us and he is given Mary as his mother. Mary becomes our spiritual mother. Let's welcome this great gift. Really think about that my friends as we're getting ready to approach Holy Week. Think about this that right before Jesus died, he wanted to give you and me one last great gift. And he gave us a gift that was so dear to his own heart, and that's his mother, Mary. And and he entrusts Mary to be our spiritual mother. All the saints in heaven, they are connected to us in the body of Christ. They pray for us. They intercede for us. We, We look at them as great models. But Mary stands out among all the saints. She's the one who's closest to Christ. She's the one that intercedes for us uh, up in heaven for us. So let's turn to Mary. Let's ask her to pray for us. Let's ponder this great gift that we've been given in Mary, our spiritual mother, given at Calvary. Uh, If you look at, by the way, if you want a little more information on this, it's certainly, I cover this in my new book, No Greater Love, which is the Walk Through Christ's Passion. You can get that at ascensionpress.com. But I want to tell you about another book that I had that just came out earlier uh, in the fall. It was a, It's a much more in-depth look. If you're looking for a deep dive, you really want to understand Mary in the Bible, you want to understand this particular scene better, uh, check out my book called Rethinking Mary in the New Testament. That one's put out by Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute. It's called Rethinking Mary in the New Testament. This is a book in which I cover every New Testament reference to Mary. <laughs> a whole chapter just on the word hail or full of grace or uh, do whatever he tells you uh, and have several chapters on the scene of Mary at the cross. One chapter is specifically on these words, behold your mother. And it's a really deep dive. Uh, so if you want some in-depth information, you could check that out. Both of these works you can find on my website. But before we go, I want to take some of our listeners' questions. And I bet you have some of these questions, maybe not right today, but when you go to Palm Sunday Liturgy and you hear the gospel account, uh, or when you go to Good uh, Good Friday Liturgy, the Good Friday service, and you hear that passion narrative told, you may wonder about Judas. And I want to really reflect more in depth on Judas, perhaps at another uh, another episode someday, but... Today, I want to take Patty's question here. Patty has this great question about Judas and Judas's role uh, there 
at the Last Supper and how Satan entered into him. She said, would you please explain how Satan was able to enter uh, enter Judas and make Judas deny that Jesus was the Son of God? Uh, uh, well, I, uh, the, how, what is this all, all about with Judas having um, Satan enter into him? So the, I think what we want to see here, this language, you find it in Luke chapter 22, verses 3 through 4, at the Last Supper. We got to keep in mind, Judas is responsible for his actions. He's still in control of his life. He's not controlled by Satan, but he is influenced by Satan. Satan is active. Satan is on the move. Satan's going to be going after Jesus. He's going to be going after Peter and the other apostles. He's certainly influencing Judas here. Uh, So Judas, you know, if you think about it, how did this happen with him? Judas allowed himself to be more open to the influence of Satan in his life through many other sins that he committed earlier in his life. You think about what happened a year a year ago, a year before the Last Supper. Judas was there when Jesus gave the Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6, and he did not like the fact that Jesus was teaching about the Eucharist and that all the people were getting upset about this strong language, about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And so uh, he was really mad at Jesus, you get the sense, from John chapter 6, a year before the Last Supper. And then we know in the last week before Jesus's life, as he's going into Jerusalem, uh, he seems upset about the, the woman that anoints Jesus and, and uses this large amount of ointment that could have been used, he says, for the poor. But John's gospel tells us, really, we know that Judas was in charge of the money bag and, and he didn't like that all that money was just going to be laid to waste. He wanted some of that money for himself. Uh, so you get the sense Judas was a thief. He certainly was greedy. He's looking for more money. He, he wants to even cut a deal with the chief priests so he can get some, some money, 30 pieces of silver from them. So there is a lot of sin going on that keeps growing and, and percolating in Judas's life that makes him open to the work of Satan in his life evermore. So that's why it's really important for us. We should, we don't need to to be too frightened. We, we, Jesus has won the victory. We always can have the sacraments, and as long as we're faithful, uh, we can withstand the temptations of the devil. But when we open ourselves up more and more toward uh, not living in friendship with Christ like Judas was, that's when we become more open to the influences uh, uh, of, of Satan. So uh, let's keep that in mind as we hit the Holy Week liturgy coming up here. One last question, not directly related to Holy Week here. This one comes from uh, a man named Christopher who was asking about circumcision in the Bible. Uh, he says he has a friend who was asking him about this. Do, do Christians, do Catholics still practice circumcision like the Jews did? Uh, he says that uh, he knows that many people People are circumcised as children today. So is that because of religious matters or is that just health issues? What's the Catholic Church's take on circumcision? Well, it's clear that circumcision in the Old Testament was like the gateway into the covenant. Uh, for males, this is, was like their baptism. This is how you enter into covenant with God. You are officially a son of Abraham, a part of the nation of Israel. But in the New Covenant era, 
circumcision is no longer necessary. We are, are now baptized. Baptism is the new circumcision. That's the way we enter in to the covenant with God. Uh, now, if people choose to still be circumcised, that's fine. If they choose not to be circumcised, that's fine. That's not a religious issue. If someone says you must be circumcised to be a faithful Christian, that's a problem. St. Paul goes after that. There were many uh, Jewish Christians in the first century that were saying, all right, yeah, we're, we're Christians, but you got to be a Jew first. You got to be circumcised first. And Paul says, no, you don't need circumcision. It's not essential. Uh, but if you choose to get circumcision just because you want to, for health reasons, whatever, if that's what you want to do with your children, that's totally fine. If you choose not to, that's fine. It's not a religious matter in and of itself. So thank you for sending these questions in and your comments. And I really want to hear from the listeners if there was something today about Mary, about Mary at the cross with the beloved disciple that really touched you or inspired you or helped you in your walk with Mary and with Jesus in this Lent. Uh, please let me know. I want, to, I want to hear about that. Uh, if you have any questions about Mary and the Christian life and the Bible or any question about anything related to the Catholic faith, you can always reach out to me. I want to hear from you at info.edwardsree at gmail.com. That's info.edwardsree at gmail.com. You can always find me on my website, edwardsree.com, and you can always contact me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as well. Uh, so I'm looking forward to your questions and your feedback as we move along. Know that I'm praying for you. Please pray for me and my family as we continue our Lenten journey together. May God bless you.